when you are carrying somebody, even if they aren't sick to begin with, they often get jostled around in the litter a lot. So sometimes people just get sick because they're being jostled. (laughs) So far to date, I have been off of the litter all but one time. (laughs) And the one time I was on the litter, I was at the feet. (laughs) I was so lucky. I'm doing good. This is good for me because I'm not. It's definitely not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been on the search, have you? I haven't. I we had there was we got called off. Oh yeah, I left work to go to that search and oh, got Warren. To, yeah, got to the parking lot mm. and said, "Oh, you can go back home." <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it happens. Yep. They come in spurts. Yeah. Huh? How does it work to progress progress within? a search and rescue team, do you have to go on a certain number of missions before you get called in for a search or do you have to do a certain number of missions before you get called in for a winter carry or how, how does that all work? You got to be a guy. What? <laughs> That's not even what? true. Stop. Nobody believes that. The whole purpose of this episode is to dispel that idiocy. Thank you, Mike. You got to be a rugged Jesus. guy. Cut this out. We're gonna edit well, this out. I'm yeah, sorry, edit. I'm not. He's had too much wine. <laughs> Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire. Welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. I look fuzzy. Hopefully it's not the internet. Could be the internet connection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can, you, I'm, I'm recording now. All right, you guys are looking clear here. So the Woodpecker Studio for the listeners, like Stomp has this whole setup in the Woodpecker Studio where he's got a spotlight on himself, but our guests are like invisible. <laughs> They're like sitting in the dark. So I don't have all a about, spotlight. Stomp's the main character. I don't have a spotlight on myself. Hold on a minute. Yeah. Watch this. Ready? Uh, I come prepared. Look at this. Oh, oh yeah. Look at that. Now I'm like. What did you just do? I can't tell you. It's a he secret. moved the spotlight. It's an LED spotlight. <laughs> hey, that works. That works. Right. Yeah, it looks good. All right. Well, Stomp, I've been um, I've been thinking about Native Americans lately. Really? Tell me more. Yeah, there's been some controversy. So in my in my town, we our mascot, our oh. our sports team mascot, is the Indians, I, and they got they canceled the Indians. I heard this. So um, there was. You know, the, the typical talk when this stuff happens is people are like, well, what's next? Because we do, we have this river in our town, which is called the Powwow River. And you know, I think we covered this before where there's a law where they're trying to change the the names of some, some place names that they find offensive. So it just got me thinking about uh, Native Americans in general and just sort of went down this rabbit hole around what the hell were they doing here before the white man ended up showing up and ruining their world. Right, so as I was thinking about this, there was a there was a thread that popped up on the forgotten New Hampshire site about, uh, and I'm, we're going to talk about this later in the show, but those those green plaques that are in New Hampshire, there's a plaque that's in, I think it must be in Crawford Notch, about Darby Field, the first guy to climb Mount, oh, the first white man to climb Mount Washington. Yep. You, you know who this guy is, right? I've heard the name. Was he in one of those books? I think I might have read about him, like Not Without Peril or something. 
Well, he's credited as being the first person to ascend Mount Washington. But when somebody had posted this this roadside sign in this Facebook group and said, like, this is the guy and this is an interesting story, everybody got all ticked off because they were basically like, Native Americans have climbed that mountain before him. And I guess he had a couple of guides that were Native Americans. So everybody was fighting back and forth over whether or not Darby Field was the first person to climb Mount Washington or whether or not it was likely that Native Americans had climbed it before. Hmm. So the question I want to ask you and Jen and Lindsay, you can you can jump in on this, too, if you have an opinion. Uh, do you think that it's likely that Native Americans climb Mount Washington before this this guy Darby Field climbed? I would think. Yeah, I don't see why not. Right. Totally plausible. Yeah, I think it's plausible as well, but let me play the devil's advocate for a second. So I did a little bit of research. So I had a little bit of time on my hands this weekend because my wife's in Florida and I was like trying to figure out, I'm like, how many Native Americans were in New England back in the 1600s or the 1500s? And there's no way for them to know, but like I, I, I came up with a couple of numbers. Like there was an estimate of 70,000 in New England and then there was another estimate of around 100,000. Hmm. So... Assuming, like, even if it's 100,000, New England is 70,000 square miles. So that basically means that there's maybe one person per square mile in New England. And Mm -hmm. then as you really start digging into the numbers, you see that the, like, the Wampanoag tribe, which is, like, down the Cape in Rhode Island and that area, like, they had... They're estimating like 40,000. So then that leaves like 30,000 to 50,000 Native Americans in the rest of New England. Yeah. Right. So the Pentecook tribe is where basically they. Can you tell Mike is a data crunch guy or what? I do. I do like crunching that stuff. So anyway. So the Pentecook tribe is the ones that were in sort of the New Hampshire. Now, when you look at these Native Americans, they traveled along the rivers. So they would they would travel along sort of the deep, slower rivers like the Connecticut River and then the Merrimack probably would be interesting, but I don't see why they would go past the mouth of the Merrimack or, or go up that high into like the Amanusik and stuff like that because those are basically shallow, shallow fast-running rivers. Um, so honestly, I think it's plausible that there was no Native Americans going up into that area. Like, there just wasn't any people around. Yeah, makes sense. So, we'll have to see, I guess, if, if the listeners want to chime in and give their opinions. But I also think about, like, how crazy it would have been to, like, bust through to get get to the uh, the peaks of the uh, the presidentials back then. I'm sure. Yeah, I think they probably knew better, but I'm sure they did during the, the uh, warmer months, perhaps. Could be, but here's the other crazy thing that I that I uh, that somebody brought up in the thread, and then I started to do some research. This guy Darby Field lived in like Durham, so he was basically like essentially like if you put it in terms of the Game, game of Thrones, he was living at the wall. He was at the edge of civilization, and <laughs> right. I think he was I think he was working like in the Great Bay in that area down there. So they probably were able to go up onto um, Agamemnicus and th- those little peaks to see like the high peaks from far off because you can see from the the main coast those peaks yep and from the time that this guy climbed it which was 1642 until the time that they really started settling into the crawford notch area that was in 1812 which is when like abel crawford and that whole crew so between Hmm. 1642 and 1812 there's not a lot of records of anybody going up into that area oh because 
So you get 150 years between the time that Darby Field climbs Mount Washington until they actually start opening up Crawford Notch. Hmm. Th- what the hell's going on during that time? I think you have to do some more digging, but you're onto something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, Maybe they were just telling stories to each other about it instead of writing it all down at that point. Could be. Good point. So anyway, that's the history lesson, Stomp. I love it. It's usually at the I end feel of like the you show, weren't that excited about it. <laughs> no, you know why? It's because I'm monitoring the internet right now. I'm in internet monitoring mode, and I'm just making sure everything's okay. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> and we're you, like okay, wrangling so just, a cat back here, so <laughs> yeah. very important. Daphne's the um, the assistant executive producer is in the house at the moment, and she's all over them. In like five minutes, she'll be asleep behind you. Right. Do you want me to put her out oh, just no. for now? She's lovely. She's like kissing them and everything. She's amazing. But here's the story, Mike. I figured out the internet problem. Um, it's very simple. I got the notification that the bill was due for the internet, and my wife is the one that usually pays it, and I never told her that I got the bill. So that's why we had no service. Can you believe that? It's called automatic. Payment. It shows you how we operate. <laughs> it's Mrs. Mrs. Stomp's fault. No, no, no. It's probably mine. It's mine. Yeah. I failed to good answer. Correct. Yeah. Answer. <laughs> right. So anyway, crisis averted. Yeah, like literally, I spent all last night ripping apart the router, the modem, re- reconfiguring <laughs> no. it. You know, putting Instead new wires rip, in. You should have been ripping apart your checkbook. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, sure enough, the guy this morning's like, oh, you're past due by like two months. I'm like, what? <laughs> so funny. Oh, well. Oopsie. Whoopsie. All right, Oopsie. well. So I'm glad that Jen and Lindsay are enjoying the cat, but I, I heard a rumor that they don't really like cats and more dog people. Uh, I heard the dog people. Well, that's what that's what's in the notes here. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of true. It is I mean, we true. like cats, but yeah. Yeah. I became a cat person by accident. By accident? Well, oh, you were a dog person in, yeah. originally. Interesting. Huh. The cat kind of just well, it's, squirmed her way in. <laughs> and and have you always been? <laughs> I've always had cats. And dogs. And dogs. Okay. Because I was under the impression you two were upset about the uh, the unequal representation of uh, canines in the slasher administrative staff. Well, I, I mean, it was unequal. Benson was very upset about right. it. Right, Benson was probably the most upset. Yep. Do you remember Benson, Mike? I don't remember Benson, though. He he was the dog that was posted on Insta on the story, the uh, Basset Hound, that was, wasn't too impressed with that Odin dog. Do you remember Odin? Oh, yes. Yeah, he wasn't too impressed with Odin. But I don't okay. think he's too impressed but, with much. <laughs> but that's not the other Basset Hound that's like the famous Basset no. Hound. Oh, Oscar, hey. right? No, but we we want to meet Oscar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, I was we were messaging Oscar's owner to try to get him to come on to do a hiking with dog segment, but we, I, I got to fall back up with him. Oh, uh, he's like out west yeah, now. Yeah, uh, we were following him. He's out west yeah. now. Is he? I right. think he lives out there, so I don't know. Huh. I did. I did meet Oscar, and I, honestly, I was like fanboying out. I was so excited. <laughs> How about we do a remote? We'll do a remote with Oscar. There you go. Will that work yes. from his van life? <laughs> oh, well, Stomp, so is there anything you want to cover with sponsors or, or coffee or any of that fun stuff? Oh yeah, we had uh, a donation from Texofa. 
if I say that correctly, Texofa, which is AKA Andy and Sandy, which is Andy Cannon, who came in and talked about the PT stuff last week, was it? Yeah, so Andy, thank you very much. And um, he wanted me to pass on that if anybody's at Reckless, they can ask for Andy or Sandy and they'll both come over and say hi and just say you're from the uh, the podcast listenership. Um, one more plug for Nick Rallo, friend of the show. Let's see if I can pull off another rhyme here. Um, he does Dex additions, remodeling windows and doors, fully insured. He's right up here in the North Country. He's one of the best. Uh, 603-325-1661. And uh, just as we mentioned, at Reckless Brewing, our sponsor, which uh, is fantastic, uh, where you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, many 4,000 footers, and less than 10 minutes from the Five Corners. Hey, you know what's funny? I'm wicked nervous that these two are sitting here watching me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm on stage. This is awful. Like, it's a like weird setup. Backseat drivers. <laughs> like, it is. It's like, like they're a, critiquing it, me in their head going, God, he sucks. He's the worst. It's not happening. No. <laughs> it's all in your head. Yeah, yeah. So for the audience, just to reference, like, so, so like Stomp's in front of them and they're sitting behind him. So, and then I feel like I'm at the head of the class like the teacher, but I'm on video. <laughs> I feel like a, a New York taxi driver or something. Were you two going? <laughs> South End? Uh, West Side? Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's my stop. <laughs> That'll be $100, please. No tip for you. <laughs> All right, so you want me to do the show summary here, Stomp? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so tonight we are joined by our friends Jen and Lindsay. Say hello. 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 <laughs> All right, so they're both active search and rescue team members in New Hampshire, so they're here to share their perspective on the rewards and challenges of being involved in search and rescue. We're excited to hear their stories about how they got involved in hiking, search and rescue, and outdoor adventures. Um, and I also think we may break our all-time record for beers drank during an episode because they brought in a cooler full of beer. So could so get wild epic. at Snomp's house at the Woodpecker Studio. Um, no, they're, they're setting a, a standard here for guests. Which, which is, is hysterical because I so awesome. seldom drink, but, you know, hey, I was inspired. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's the exactly. beer segment. You right? got to represent. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll Couldn't be like, what are you that. drinking? Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> well, I made my husband stop at... Case and keg on the way over. <laughs> Is that the place with the soap? The soap and the beer? It was, no, I, guess, I gotta go there. <laughs> no. so. Now, we joke about this one place that uh, sells soap and beer oh. in the same building. Like, what a weird combo. But I guess it works. Guess if you get really sick and throw up all over yourself, you can clean up real well. <laughs> yes, that's true. Hey, hey, Stomp. Yes, sir. Can I finish? Can I finish? Oh, my sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so we may also break. Uh, oh, no, I already read that part. Uh, so this is falling apart. But it's fine. Later in the show, we will cover some recent search and rescue news and we will catch up on um our list of White Mountain history topics that we've been sitting on. I actually already covered one. So I'm Mike. And I'm stumped. Let's get started. All right. But we already did get started, so we <laughs> <laughs> can just continue. So. Too funny. Sorry about that. No, no worries. That was good. Um, so beer talk here. So uh, why don't we start with you, Stomp? What are you drinking? I'm having some of the leftover Seven Deadly Sins wine from when um, Pastor Ken was over talking about his books. <laughs> it's a nice Cabernet. Hmm. Yeah. How about you, Mike? I am. So I drank one of these probably like 
20 shows ago, but I'm drinking Love and Wrestling uh, from Mayfa- Mayflower <laughs> Brewing. I don't know. I have no idea, but it just works. I love wrestling, so I was a big pro wrestling geek when I was growing up in the 80s, so it's pretty good. It's a double IPA, so I'm, I'm back to my beer drinking habits. I remember that. That was probably the uh, Franconia Ridge episode yeah, that we loved so know. much. It was a long time ago. So. <laughs> and how about the back row? All right. This is Lindsay, and I am drinking Moat Mountain Brewing Company Bone Shaker Brown Ale. Ooh. Yeah. Bone Shaker. Is there like a paragraph along with it to describe why they named it or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Bone Doesn't Shaker. Doesn't seem to be. Okay. All right. And you, Miss Davis? Uh, this. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. That is. It's my alter ego. Um, Stone Brewery. It's like a Mexican chocolate Trileche stout. Trileche, Mike. Yeah. Did you hear that? It's fancy. Impressive. Yeah. Three leches. Um, it's like 8.5%, so I will Oof. not be finishing this <laughs> unless you want me to sleep on this couch tonight. You can give it to Daphne. She might. She was already sniffing at it a bit, but I don't know. She wanted the leche. <laughs> oh, the nine leches. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty potent. Pretty tasty. You might have some drunk people here by the end of the night. <laughs> Why are these craft beers getting so potent? Is this like a, a competition amongst the breweries? I mean, seriously, some of the beers that they're making now are just ridiculous. We'll have to ask Steve. I mean, the beers are expensive. They're like, you know, it's eighteen dollars for, or you know, fourteen to eighteen dollars for a four pack on average. So, yeah, people probably make the calculation that if they're going to spend that kind of money, they want to get some alcohol for their money i would suppose yeah i suppose you're right makes sense as opposed to taste mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or flavor yeah. <laughs> exactly although i do find with the ipas and you know i'm i'm far removed from college but back in college when we were drinking nothing but bush light like you could drink a six pack of that before even going out and you know was drinking water but like i could ne- you could never do that this is a double ipa like i could never just pound this down. I suppose some some people can, but I certainly couldn't. Mm-hmm. No. Double IPA. Good stuff. Double IPA, yep. Um, hmm. All right, so, so recent hikes, you, you done anything? <sighs> nope. <laughs> Spicy cheetah guy. I've done nothing, but it's honestly, it's just I've been too busy. And um, it's an interesting topic. Remember I told you about my issue where I get OCD about waiting for res- rescue calls, so I just sit around on the couch. <laughs> I think I need an intervention. I really do. I know. It sounds weird, but it's true. So I just sit around, watch TV, and, you know, wait for the call. And then, then all of a sudden, it's Monday morning, and then I haven't hiked. I need I help. It. Somebody help me. Stop prevention. <laughs> right. This is just a tough, it's a tough time of the year. So I don't want to use that as a, an excuse because I look at their okay. Instagrams and these two are out all the time. Oh, so, I haven't been out get... lately. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Jen has. Well, I had the week off, so I took advantage I, of it. I saw your pictures. Did you go to Carrigan? I did last week. I did Hancock's. I did Carrigan. And then this past Saturday, I did a Bonds Twins Traverse. Awesome. Which kicked my butt. Yeah, I bet. Did you go solo or with anybody else? I started out solo and then met up at Bond Cliff with a guy that was um, named Kyle. 
doing yeah. his grid, working on his grid. He's pretty far into it. And um, that worked out well. We ended up hiking together for a while. And um, I figured he would, you know, at some point peel away much faster <laughs> hiker. But then my uh, car spot on the other side fell through. Oh, geez. And uh, Lindsay, who would let me borrow her Garmin in reach, I was able to message this person. So I was going to need a ride. And I, I would have been able to figure it out. But he ended up giving me a ride back to exit. Um, 32 so wow living on the edge yeah <laughs> did, did you have these the plan a and plan b in your your book in terms of just in case or was this on the fly it was kind of on the fly <laughs> <laughs> i mean having the, gar- the having the garmin was like kind of was my plan b because i knew that i'd be able to that's awesome if the car spot fell through did you I know how to use up. the garmin did you, did you figure that out on the way too? No, um, Lindsay was kind enough to give me a tutorial, <laughs> and it's sim- somewhat similar to the GPS units that we use for SAR. Yeah. So that part of it, as far as you know, scrolling through the different pages, yeah, was very similar. Actually, a little more user friendly than the ones we have <laughs> for SAR. Wow, epic! So that's a lot of mileage, hmm. Lindsay. Last, did you was uh, Tecumseh the last thing that you did? Yeah. Oh, okay, so she. Uh, myself and the teal goat uh, to Tecumseh. That was a. I mentioned that a couple shows ago, actually. But yeah, because you had your umbrella. Mm. <laughs> I felt like you were Mary Poppins. I came up the mountain. It worked pretty well. I don't know. Uh, Did you use an umbrella? I've, I've always been curious of whether it's worth it or not. It is. If you run hot, then you don't have to worry about the thick waterproof layer up on top. So you can wear a t-shirt, a wicking t-shirt, maybe a thin microfiber. Uh, thermal underneath that if you need to which I think I did that day and then the umbrella does the rest so I just breathe easier instead of wearing this monstrous Gore-Tex thing that doesn't breathe that well it doesn't work very well when it's a hurricane do you, you just have to, you just hold the umbrella like Mary Poppins yes sir yes sir <laughs> I feel like I saw Dan, you know Danielle um, well she was the one that got me into it our friend Danielle she's an umbrella person but she like is. I feel like she has an umbrella that like attaches to her shoulder strap or something. <laughs> of course I feel like she that does. That was a thing. I don't know. <laughs> of course she does. Well, she can get away with it. But she was the one that got me into umbrellas. Cool. Yeah. I've used one a few times for short hikes. Yeah. It's not bad. Yeah. They, they work great. They don't work so good when you're going up Scar Ridge and there's um, a bushwhack when, you know, thick scrub and stuff. They don't work out too hot for that. But Yeah, yeah. Me and my friend Tom were in the, the absolute, like, monsoon going up the Mahoosic arm. I don't think the umbrella would have helped. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but for Tecumseh, fair game. How about you, Mike? You still on Honeydew? The Honeydew list is complete, so the oh, stairs nice. are done. I'm going to put, I think I'm going to put another, I'm going to put an after picture on the Instagram account, but the stairs are done and the the leaves are all picked up. So um, I did do, the only thing I did do related to hiking this week is I filled out my 4,000 footer patch application and my 52 with a view Mm -hmm. application. So it was good. But I was like thinking back about, I, the 4,000 footers, like all those hikes were in like 2016, 2017, 2018. And then I was doing the 52 with the views and the terrifying 25s and 19 and 20. So I haven't hiked. I mean, I've done a lot of repeats with my 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 uh, daughter and, and other friends. But, you know, that, that Cabot hike that we were talking about for the audience, we've all hiked together one time on Mount Cabot. That was in November. Yes. Of 2018. That was some yeah, serious It must snow. have been 2018. I believe yeah, so. And I, looked I think it up on I finished travel, that year. If you, yeah. 
Yeah. That's a, and if you had told flies, me like huh? what the date was on that, I would have said that was like the middle of February because of the snow that we were. But it was November. It was crazy yeah, snow. It was crazy. And we met at the summit. Yeah. At the the actual the actual summit. The actual, the actual summit. Let's yes. be clear. <laughs> that's, that's so funny. People mess that one up all the time, including myself. And I was psyched because I had been on SAR for maybe just that first year, mm-hmm. and I wanted to get on the winter team. Oh, and I yeah. was like, all right, Stomp's <laughs> gonna get to see me in action. I can prove myself <laughs> and like not fall flat on my face in my snowshoes. <laughs> and meanwhile, there I am and without <laughs> snowshoes like a total idiot. Yeah, I was prepared. Yeah, any <laughs> any club where Stomp has influence in deciding the membership, I don't want to join. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, You'll be surrounded by cats. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thankfully, I don't have too much influence. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jen and Lindsay, before we um, get into sort of a, a deep dive in in your backgrounds, we have done a couple of episodes. So we had Karen, we had um, Rebecca on to help us with winter hiking, and I've seen like a, a few social media posts around people that were like, "I went up so and so, and I learned a hard lesson." X, Y, and Z, you know, typical stuff about not having the right gear or not having the right traction, things like that. So before we get into a lot of detail, I wanted to give, I guess, Jen, I'll start with you. Is there any sort of pearls of wisdom or great advice that you have around winter hiking that you'd want to share with the audience? Um, I think one of the really important thing is you need to feel yourself differently than other times of the year. You burn a lot of calories Um, and you lose a lot of fluid. So even if you don't feel like you're sweating a lot, you're losing fluid just breathing more so in the winter. So it's really important, I think, just to, you know, whether it's every half hour, every hour, stop, make sure you're drinking, eat something if you don't think that you're hungry because you may get to that point where your reserves are starting to get depleted and then you're starting to feel nauseous and you don't want to eat. And that starts to get into a dangerous situation where you are more prone to fatigue, more prone to hypothermia. So stop and take, you know, people try to rush sometimes in winter. Um, and also the kind of where you have your food um, accessible in your pack, because if it's really cold in different places, you don't want to be stopping and fumbling to get to your food. Um, you need to be able to to kind of eat on the fly, depending on what the conditions are. Yeah, I agree. And I, I always find myself forcing myself to eat and drink in the winter just because I just don't get hungry and I don't get thirsty in yep. the winter. It's just maybe it's cold weather. Yep. Mm, and yeah, I like to bring sure. something hot to drink. I just think it makes me drink better. Yeah. <laughs> do you uh, heat your water before you go? I do. If it's to middle of winter. Or? Yeah. Usually, um, I usually bring a thermos to something hot that I know will stay hot pretty much the whole hike. I'll usually boil an algae and have that in a little insulated cozy inside my pack so that if it's you know depending on the conditions if it's you know around zero degrees hopefully by the time I bust into that you know it's not freezing cold and then the the one that I usually have like on my hip belt in its own separate cozy koozie whatever those are called um yeah koozie I guess I don't know that I'll boil that because I want to be able to drink it right away but I'll put you know hot water in just to make it a little Hmm. easier to drink Hmm. I run cold so I like to generally stay warmer. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. I'm just the opposite. Now, you might want to tell Mike where you're from. Where I'm from. Originally, remember? Originally? Remember, yeah. Well, I'm from New Hampshire. Yeah, and? Um, well, I'm not from that area, but I worked 
at the Belknap Mall Belknap. for a stretch. <laughs> like, in, oh, yeah. like in high school. Mike thinks it's Belknap still. Belk, the Belknaps. So I can't tell you how depressing it is when, you know, because I pride myself like, oh, I'm a New Englander. And like, because my in-laws have the house in Maine and then I spend so much time in New Hampshire, like people will say, oh, you're a man. But so I'll always be like, well, you know, I've traveled more areas in New Hampshire than most people <laughs> that even live in New Hampshire. And then I'll, I'll then I'll throw something out like, oh, the belt naps. And then I, I get exposed for being a, a flatlander. So. <laughs> That's great. So, but you know, I agree like the, um, the, the thermos with the, the hot liquid, I almost look at that as a 10 essentials for me because we, we had a hypothermia situation on an overnight, uh, with my friends and to see how quickly my friend was able to snap out of uh, his hypothermia situation with hot liquid was like an epiphany for mm-hmm. me. So I've always brought a thermos full of like hot chocolate and I, I usually will drink half of it when I get up top and then I save another half of it just in case I run into somebody that's in trouble, you know, just to have that available, I think is, is, is huge. And that's the, that's the big piece of advice that I, I always pound into people as well about winter hiking. Definitely. Yeah. Lindsay, what about you? Well, I'd have to say making sure you have some type of turnaround time. So whether it's, you know, if you don't make it up to the summit, make sure that you're prepared to just turn around because the winter is totally different. If you're breaking trail, if you're doing anything, we've had to turn around many times and just, you don't make it, mountain's not going anywhere. Do you live by a, like a hard, hard deadline, like two o'clock or three, 3 p.m. or that type of thing, or just? In certain situations, if it's starting to get later, I mean, I don't, I don't go out there and say, this is my deadline for this particular summit, but if it's starting to get later, we'll look at the, how long it's taken us and how much we may still have to go, and sometimes we'll just bail if, if people are starting to get tired or... Hmm. Yeah, I tend to avoid the the hard time deadlines and just look at the weather and mileage left. I'm not really concerned about the dark or the evening. You know, I, that's fine with me. But because uh, I sort of wonder about people that call it at two o'clock and just turn around, like, what? Wait a minute, we we can keep on going, right? Um, yeah, if you have headlamps, especially in the well, winter, it's it's really easy to hike out because if there's yeah. snow cover, you're going to see pretty well. Yeah, sure. And I think the more you hike in the dark the more you enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So we 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 would hike yeah. in the dark all the time in the summer mm-hmm. after work. Yeah, Saturday I started in the dark, I ended in the dark. You yeah. get used to it. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And with SAR, we're doing it all the time. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, search and rescue sees mostly afternoon and nighttime activity, it seems. Yeah, exactly. All right, so snop. Uh, so that's good. I, I, keep wa- I want to keep focusing on this winter hiking topic just because I, I feel like there's a lot of people that are getting into it and you know, I was lucky enough to have people that were experienced winter hikers that I could hike with and you know learn from and ask a lot of questions and I don't you know I don't know if everybody has that opportunity so the more wisdom we can share the better it is hopefully people will stay safe out there so that you guys can have a nice boring winter <laughs> yeah exactly so stump can get off the couch yeah. yeah, there we go. That's yeah. the solution. That's perfect. Yeah. Now, do you get? So, Jen, are you like that? Do you wait around for for calls, or do you just sort of take the perspective that, like, if I'm available, I'm going to be out there? But um, it's a mix. So during our busy season, I, I I don't really like hiking on weekends anyway. Um, 
just because there's way too many people around and I'm fortunate to have days off in the week with my job. So um, usually it's time that we're catching up on stuff around the house on weekends and then if calls come in, I'm there. But if an opportunity comes up, you know, somebody wants to hike and I'm around, um, I'm not gonna put it off just so that you know, in case I'm going to miss something on SAR, which we, you know, Lindsay and myself and one other friend were out. We did Madison about two months ago. Yep. And as we're, you know, we were still like three hours out when the call came in. We're like, oh, because we're not going to make this one. We kind of thought we could make it at first. We're, we're like, well, we're like, we'll just respond. We're going to be late. <laughs> we yeah. definitely weren't going to make it. Over late. Yeah. That's actually, you just gave me a good idea. Like if you're, if you're doing, if you needed to do housework on a weekend, <laughs> you could start, you could get everything prepped and then start, just start the work and then have Lindsay call you and then just, you know, tell your, you know, your, your husband like, okay, I gotta go. And then, you know, there you can go off to Reckless and have some beers. Right. While doing well, my work. problem is my partner's also on the team. So yeah, oh, it's so not going to work out not there. not going to work so much for me. But. It doesn't work. Oh, well. <laughs> I tried. I tried. So, um. All right, Stomp, so you want to get into uh, the, the first segment here, which is introductions, even though we've talked to them for like a half hour. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we'll, we'll jump through this a little bit, but let's go to Lindsay. So uh, just say hi and tell us where you live, what uh, what you do in the area, what brought you to New Hampshire, your outdoor activities, all that good stuff. All right. Give us a little overview. My name's Lindsay. I live in Holderness. I actually grew up around here in New Hampshire, in Campton, actually. Hmm. So not far away. I grew up, my father worked for the Forest Service, so many outdoor activities, camping, hiking, things like that. Yeah. I think I got more into hiking a few years back. A group of us that hiked together all worked together, and we had a hiking group that I started. Oh, you started it? Yeah. The founding member. Founding member. What was the name of the hiking group? It was just the (laughs) Mid-State Hiking Group. (laughs) It was a non-committal hiking group. (laughs) I was going hiking. You could come with me if you wanted. (laughs) All experience levels. That's great. Yeah. I got got some guff for some of my uh, ratings of the hikes, but I used the White Mountain Guide as my Bible. (laughs) They thought I was being... Not hard. They, they thought everything was tough. Yeah, but but it was fun. We had a good time, and then that kind of kicked off to doing the forty-eight things like that. How many years did it take you to finish the forty-eight? Two. Wow, that's not bad. Yeah, and I Same. think and I was out for nine months. <clears throat> right, right. <clears throat> I wasn't that's pregnant funny. though. Don't worry about that. It was <laughs> it was an injury. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> Okay, so you, you're an avid hiker. I've had a, the opportunity to hike with you, which is cool. Um, very strong and fast. And how did you get turned on to search and rescue? Jen, actually. Ah. <laughs> I recruited. She did. She recruited a couple of us, and she tried to for a couple of years anyway. But I don't do well with bodily fluids, blood vomit things like that <laughs> that's, where, that's where jen comes in yeah it's like you don't have to deal with that i'll deal with that mm-hmm. <laughs> so i uh, pretty much finally i she told me that i didn't have to have any medical background which and, i don't yeah you really don't no i don't know she finally convinced me and i'm very glad i 
decided to join. Have you had any close calls on the trail? Yes. So that one time I was out for nine months, I had been hiking up the Amanusik Ravine Trail Mm -hmm. with my friend Katie, and we decided to do a little off trail to a waterfall. On the way back out, I uh, was stretching a little bit too much and dislocated my knee and damaged the cartilage in my knee. Holy moly. Up by the gem pool? A little bit further up. Okay. That's way up there. Yeah, so it took us a little while to get down. She got me a couple sticks to use as my poles. Wow. I just didn't want search and rescue to come take oh, me so out. Oh, so were you a SAR member at the time? <laughs> no, I, I wasn't, but I think okay. Jen was. Because we always joke about that. Like, you'll never see a SAR member call for help. They will crawl over oh. broken glass <laughs> before they call SAR. <laughs> and that's sort of the, the consensus from what I've experienced. Wow. Yeah. So how long did it take you to get back down? It took us a while. So but we had started early, so we had all the time in the world. Yeah. Interesting. So just one other person helping you down? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Any questions, Mike, before I move on to contestant number two? <laughs> no, no, but I, I, I wouldn't hesitate to. I, I'm going to call. So I want to ride in that wheelie thing. <laughs> You know what we should do is get Mason on that thing. He doesn't even What's need the litter. The he wheelie just, thing. The, the wheeler. The, wheel. the wheeler for the litter. Oh. The well, then there are only the specific thing. hikes you can go on for that. All right. I'll make sure I'm injured on one of those. Just go to Welch Dickey. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Welch Dickey. That's your, that's your spot. It's so true. So, Jen. Uh-huh. So you, we've established that she's from the Belk Naps. And, uh, I'm not, not from the Belknaps. <laughs> like you worked no. up there. Anyway, shut I, up, stop. I worked in that <laughs> it's the area. Belknaps. <laughs> <laughs> no, I grew up close to Concord. Gotcha. So, and now you've moved up to. And now I'm in Campton. I've okay. been up here for about, gosh, five or six years. God's country. Yep. <laughs> it really is. Love it. It's great. Um, but I grew up hiking. My parents, they weren't avid hikers, but they liked to get us outside. So we would do things like, you know, hike up in. Franconia Notch up the ridge and when um, you were younger yeah when I was younger okay and, did you do um, any other sports or anything like that or is it yeah always? I did track and field hockey and I remember being up on the ridge with them and it was hysterical because they just had gotten these brand new Gore-Tex jackets <laughs> like I think when Gore-Tex was kind of like new yeah. maybe like EMS I think EMS had just launched or something um it's probably been around for longer than that but it was like the early 90s and we're up on the ridge and got like soaked in this torrential downpour and they're nice and dry in their new Gore-Tex jackets. And I had this like cheapo nylon jacket on. I was soaked through, looked like a drowned rat. So yeah. Oops. Good. And we were probably hiking in jeans. I mean, you know, I think back, I look at the pictures of us and I'm like, what were we doing? I know. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. Looking back at the pictures, like seventies and eighties. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So I, I, Lindsay, I meant to ask you, what do you do for work? Oh, I work at New Hampshire Electric Co-op. Right. So, so listeners, you can get a discount if you <laughs> if you just reach out to us. We'll set you up. And you're now, Jen. You are in the medical field, yes. right? Yeah, I'm a registered nurse. Okay. You know, you hike when you're a kid, and I think not for everybody, but sometimes it gets you get away from it. So, like, I had moved to Boston and Massachusetts for about nine years. Yeah. And when I moved back, did like little hikes, but not a lot of huge stuff. And then when I finally right before I moved up here for for a few years before moving up here I just decided that's really how I wanted to spend most of my free time mm-hmm. so started the 48s and got those done in a couple of years and then just kept 
kind of going. What do you do now? Are you doing lists or just sort of going out for fun? Um, everything. <laughs> yeah, def- I like lists. They keep me motivated. <laughs> I don't know that I have the patience for a grid, so I'm doing a four season grid, basically. Yeah. Um, which I'm getting close to like 60 something percent on that. I'm working on hiking all the trails in the guide. I'm like 60 something percent on that. Huh. 52 with a view, terrifying 25, why not? They're fun. <laughs> but really, and then sometimes it's just like, oh, what am I gonna, just do whatever. Yeah. Somebody else wants to do something that I've done 50 times, who cares? It's just fun to be out. Yeah, it is, right? You know, and our, you know, our list of hiking halfway up to summits during <laughs> SAR calls. Yeah, it's actually sort of satisfying. <laughs> I mean, in a, in a weird way, you don't get a view, you don't get Great. anything, but you get a hell of a workout. Exactly. Uh, that's really funny. So have you, before, before search and rescue, were you ever in a pickle in a tough situation like Lindsay? Um, I think I was already on search and rescue. Yeah. Cause my ankle sprain. Oh, that was like a year and a half ago. What? Can and, you talk about that or? Um, we were starting a bushwhack close by to where I live. So we were going to go up to Peaked, um, is it Peaked? Pond or Peaked Hill Mountain over by Peaked Hill Pond. You were going to actually do the hill. Yep, and then over the the ridge to like East Kineo. Oh, I didn't know those connected. Yeah, because, Mike, it's this beautiful. is like the it's the twentieth anniversary of the Lord of the Rings. So if you want a Frodo and Sam adventure, yeah, you totally. go up to Peaked Hill Pond and you can dive. You know, get into these little old canoes that they leave there. You can do your Frodo and Sam thing across <laughs> the pond and then bushwhack up to these two little peaks. But I had no idea that well, that we connected went to from Kino. Ellsworth Pond. Yes, because okay. we're up on Ellsworth Hill, so we kind of went from that side. And it makes sense. Um, yeah, I just wow. Poor footwear choice and sprained my ankle pretty bad. And okay. then same thing, I'm not going to call. So luckily <laughs> <laughs> had two other people, one who's on SAR with me. And, you know, so huh. same thing, made some sticks for support and wow. hobbled half mile down to and then waited while they went to get the car. So Interesting. Mike, just for future reference, we need to deep dive on the, the 93 line over to Rumney essentially and capture the whole Kineo region. We really haven't talked about that area. It's beautiful. It's, it's rugged. dense. There's an experimental forest. It's just awesome. Yeah, we were actually on the boundary of the, the Hubbard Brook experimental forest okay. for yeah. a while. It was really... Mount Carr sort yep. of connects to it and um, Stinson if you wanted to. Yep. So that's a neat area. Yeah, we've bushwhacked from our house to Stinson. It's pretty cool. Oh, see? It's very wow. very moosey. Okay, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, I w- I've cl- I've hiked Stinson because of the fifty two with a view, but you're right. I haven't really done a lot outside of that in that area. So we'll have to do some field research. I don't know if Car was on fifty two with a view and if it got delisted. It was delisted. Yeah, long- I think it was like the original on the original list, and it got delisted mm-hmm. years ago. So I've been- I haven't been there. One last question: How'd you get into SAR? Um, I actually read um, Where You'll Find Me. Oh, and wow. um, I think I'd always been a little bit interested anyway. And yeah. then I read that and was just completely enthralled, like probably most people who have read that book. And yeah. um, one of the members on SAR, um, who was on the, I think he's still on the board, worked with my partner. Mm-hmm. And I think the group hadn't been maybe taking members for a while, but then we're opening it up again and mentioned that they were looking for members. So we Hmm. both signed up. Wow. Incredible. That's a hell of a story. That's neat. I I fell into it similarly just by newspaper articles and things like that. Yeah. It's like, who are these epic 
heroic people like <laughs> just doing this crazy stuff like just in the middle normal of the night. people <laughs> i know that's what that's the coolest part about it. it's like yeah uh all right all right mike any uh questions on your side yeah so i i guess to start off with so we wanted to have you both on to get um the perspective of i feel and again i don't know i i have no insight on this like what i know about sars from what i've picked up from talking to different people but my sense is that it does tend to be a more male dominated um activity and i think that on the surface you th- sort of think in terms of like okay well you've got to lift these people down mountains and that takes like you know all the strength and whatnot and i think even me i'm not a big person and obviously i live in massachusetts but if i did move to new hampshire like probably my biggest concern would be the amount of strength needed to sort of manage search and rescue and these carry outs so i guess jen i'd be curious like what was there any trepidation on your part when you decided to sign up around sort of the the environment with it being a more male dominated activity or the fact that like there would be you know if you ended up having to carry somebody out that was like 200 pounds or 300 pounds like what was your thought about that it didn't really dawn on me to to worry about that I guess um I mean I've always felt I'm a strong hiker I like, you know, at times doing bushwhacks and scrambles up slides. And so I felt like I had, you know, pretty good strength going into it. Um, as far as working in a male dominated field before I was a nurse, my background was a little more in criminal justice. And um, so I was kind of already used to some of that. And as far as feeling like if you needed to have thick skin for that, but I feel like the group that I'm with has been nothing but, you know, open arms as far as, you know, welcoming anybody onto the team as well you know as long as they're fit and able to do what's required got it and Lindsay, were you did you have any concerns about that aspect of uh sort of male dominated and and carrying people down mountains that you know would be you know tough physically for you i don't think i thought about it either i don't i just figured i mean other people do it i can help too um got it and and it it hasn't been a problem at all. Um, our group is certainly, it's more like, it is kind of like a family. You get to know people pretty well and everybody's got a great sense of humor and it's been great. Yep. Yeah. What range is it like, and Stomp, you could get, you could answer this as well. I know you, you guys carry the uh, the litters. You use those sort of shoulder straps mm-hmm. on on the litters. Does it get to a point, like if somebody reaches, and again, this is probably for everybody, um, but if you get to like 250, 300 pounds, does it just get to be impossible at a certain point that you got to carry these people out, or is there no limit to it? I actually don't know off the top of my head what question. the weight limit is for the litter. Um, oh, the, the litter, the, the titanium that we use is like four five, plus. Yeah. Four, yeah, it's that's not even an issue. It's yeah. titanium, so it's it's like my right hip. It ain't gonna break. <laughs> <laughs> and with these extension handles that we've been able to add on the last year or so, you, you can get up to like 10 people on a litter. So in those situations, you can get, enough muscle usually to make it work you might be switching out more frequently if it's a you know person that's 115 pounds you might get you know six people on the litter and they don't need a break for half a mile depending on the terrain it can kind of just keep going but there you know so every carry out is a little bit different in that regard depending on the terrain depending on how many people are there 
Got it. And then uh, from the time that you started, Jen, until now, have you seen, and Stomp's talked about this a little bit around like sort of uh, the growth and membership, at least in your specific organization, but overall within Search and Rescue, sort of across the state or across the region, have you seen any big changes as far as the membership um, or the, the, the volume of people involved in Search and Rescue? In general, I think just more people are, are aware of it and are interested and as far as, you know, women being part of that group, I feel like when I started, this is, you know, I'm finishing up year four. I think I joined 2000, spring of 2018. And a lot of times I was the only woman going out on some of these carries. Um, that, and I'm trying to think back. I can think probably about four or five women that were on the team then. Now we have like 20. Oh, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> on calls, there may be like, what, 40 to 60% females on the on the responses yeah. even it's incredible our last training we did a search training a couple weekends ago and i think we had more women turn up than men so it's great to see that yeah i wonder why that is but it's pretty fascinating it's great we're still waiting well, it on sounds like jen you've you've done a little bit of recruiting right because you got Lindsay, right into it. Lindsay and our friend katie yep yep solid crew very solid yeah Lindsay, what about you so how long have you been on search and rescue so I joined in 2000, so just just over a year. Okay. And have you, you know, I don't, maybe you don't have enough perspective to see if anything has changed, but do, do you feel like there's, uh, you know, the team's getting bigger or that you, you're, you're seeing more and more volunteers? There, there are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot more volunteers and, and a lot of women. We're just waiting for our first all women carry out to <laughs> naturally happen. It's been be, close. Yeah. Absolutely. And now we, we have more consistent members, which I think Stomp might have touched upon in previous episodes, but we just, yeah. we have a, you know, a more solid group of, you know, Regulars. when I started, maybe 12 people would show up. Now, you know, it's not uncommon to have 20 people show up, which is awesome. <laughs> if it's a real grueling one. Is that the, is there like a, um, it sound, I think, Stomp, you've talked about this a little bit before, but is there like a perfect, like, do you always want to get like 24 to 28 people showing up to these things just so you have enough firepower to carry it down? It used to be a minimum of 18. That was kind of the golden number so that you have, If now we don't always have just six on the litter, but when before we had those extension handles, if we had six on a litter, then we had three teams that we could switch out. And you're right. not necessarily assigned to like a team. It's just then you at least can switch people out. And it might be that, you know, if you only have 12 people and so you have enough for six for each time that you're carrying, you know, you're you're going to have to kind of switch out each time these sweat set down. But when you have more people, you have a little more wiggle room. So if you're if you've been carrying the longest, if you were one of the first people up and you started carrying and your arms are getting tired and as more people are showing up, um, you might sit out for a couple of rotations if you're arms are starting to get tired. <laughs> mm. I do have a comment about that. I, I think it's um, it's more fluid and dynamic than you would think. I think it really depends on... Uh, <laughs> sorry, I gotta laugh because Mike's image is frozen. Are you still there? Oh, there you are. Oh, it is. You look like Jack Nicholson at the, <laughs> the end of The Shining, frozen in the maze. Like, oh, oh that's interesting. So, all right, you're back with us. Thank God. Uh, so, I think it's more dynamic. I think um, every... 
it, it isn't like this cookie cutter thing that happens on every mission. Like, oh, we need 12. We need 12. We, it's different every time. It really is. Um, it depends on the weight of an individual. It depends on the, the you know, heat versus cold. Um, there are so many factors, so it can be really variable. And it, and it depends also on the gear that may be available at the time, too. More complicated than one would think. Interesting. Now, Lindsay, I remember when when Stomp was starting search and rescue. Like he, we were talking, and he was showing me like, here's the gear list, and I got to go do this shakedown hike and all this <laughs> stuff. And I sort of thought to myself, I was like, I'd be I'd be afraid to do that. Like it sounds like a lot of work, and like what if I bring like the wrong stuff and they yell at me, or what if you know uh, you know they don't like me for some reason? Can, can you talk about like your experience going through? Uh, the process of joining was it was it as scary as I thought it was going to be when Stomp explained it to me? Yeah, it was. <laughs> I yeah. think that everybody when they first start look at the gear list, they put everything in their pack, and then they try to go up on the qualifying hike with everything in their pack. Oh, <laughs> it's, <Yep. laughs> it's excruciating when you do that. But yeah, same, same. They're all laughing at us. <laughs> yeah, yep. it's sort of twisted. <laughs> It's just the, 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 the way it is, the uh, tradition, I suppose. Until you get up to Greenleaf and it's, the sun is set and it's freezing and everybody's <laughs> scrambling to put their layers on and then you're happy to have everything. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> That's good. Now, Lindsay, do you still carry like a heavy pack with you just, just out of habit now or have you trimmed down your gear list? I think I've always carried the heaviest pack typically <laughs> out of the people that I hike with. I, I just I have a hard time leaving anything at home. It's hard for me to slim down. I want to make sure that I have everything I need. And in the summer, I carry so much water, and it's so heavy. But I am it one is. of those people, I run hot, I need it, I need it. Do you have a filter and stuff like that? Do you yep. carry yep. the filters? I do. I need to transition into that during the summers and, and do more recon about where the water sources are because I carry the water too. And I used to be a hero, like, oh, I'm just going to carry a couple gallons and like... Get a workout. And now it's just like way too much. That's what I always told myself too. Oh, it's I'm just gonna have a better workout. Yeah. <laughs> Training. <laughs> I think I was built for SAR because I feel like I've always had the biggest pack. When I first started winter hiking, people would come along and like, Oh, where are you backpacking? It's like nowhere. I'm just over the day. This is my day hike. Bog pond. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, that's awesome. So for the listeners, Bog Pond is like a, what, a mile and a half loop uh, in Plymouth, and it's beautiful, absolutely stunning. Quincy. It's, oh, Quincy. Quincy, yeah. Quincy Bog, excuse yeah. me. Um, yeah, so it's a nice joke. There's no elevation. It's just flat. Yep. It just goes around a bog. Yeah. Now, Lindsay, what's it, can you talk a little bit about time commitment? Uh, are you sort of stuck at home on the weekends waiting for search and rescue calls? Or like if anybody was thinking about joining a... Uh, search and rescue team can you give them a sense about sort of what the commitment is you're looking at well i mean it's not it's i don't think it's a huge commitment really um it depends on how committed you want to be i thankfully have a job that allows me to leave if i if if a call comes in the middle of the week not everybody has that option but at least on the weekends it's usually sometime after three so uh if you if if you're able to you know make some of those commitments sometime after three, then three it's to not five. too bad. Yeah, yeah. You'd just be out later. Yeah. So they, we do have requirements. Um, I think but every team is a little different with mm-hmm. that. But yeah, 
they're not difficult to meet. No. It's all about Reasonable. balance. I mean, you need you really need to balance a lot of stuff. And you know, if you go out for 3 days in a row and there's a fourth and you're, you know, really exhausted, you almost need to be able to say, you know, I'm not going to go on this one because I need to recharge so that I'm more available for the next one that comes along or it's my mom's 80th birthday party and I really can't miss this. You don't want to alienate your friends and family hmm. <laughs> too much. How do you feel about that stomp? Well, I was just going to say, <laughs> I've been doing some reading. I, I actually picked up uh, the last traverse. I'm trying to make my way through it. And there's, I can't remember the CEO's name in the book, but it was so relatable. The CEO is like um, reflecting back on his, his duty as a fish and game officer saying, yeah, I got to the point where I was just sitting around all weekend waiting for a call to come in and I didn't want to work out in the morning or hike in the morning because I was going to get burnt out for the call that was going to come in and then I was missing dinner with the kids and blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh, that's so relatable. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's definitely about balance. It's super important. But for a lot of the members, I think, in the team, I think it's passion too. I think people are just passionate about search and rescue and they're, you know, no matter what state they're in, they're like, gotta go. Yeah. Let's go. Definitely. <laughs> cool. Now, Jen, what would you say, what, is, what are some memorable moments for you being on a, a search and rescue team? As far as memorable missions? Yeah, yeah. Anything that you uh, sort of sticks in your head is like, wow, that was, that was probably the wildest or coolest mission that I've been on. Um, probably the wildest was the Shining Rock overnight. That was like May, a couple of Mays ago. And it was one of those seasons where we had a lot of snow still and I think a lot of late snow so there was rotting monorail where the monorail was like what waist high oh, yeah. and so and I had been separated from some of my gear for a time so I think Stomp actually had to help me out with some layers until <laughs> my gear caught up with me I think we were all helping each other out yeah. for layers um, I remember Fishing Game saying it was one of the hardest carries they had done because mm. it was just you couldn't really slide the litter in sections. You couldn't carry it because you were just dragging it up, you know, higher than your waist along this rotting monorail and because you were down on either side of it. And uh, we started up what time did the call come in like 10 mm-hmm. and yeah. we ended up having a um, call made to the New Hampshire air guard to yeah. have one of their Blackhawks sent. And the first time they tried to come up, they couldn't even get into the notch, but we had hunkered in a spot where there was open enough canopy that they could drop a litter down um, or a jungle penetrator down. And um, so we were just waiting for what, like two <laughs> till hours? Sunrise. Yeah, till sunrise. And it basically. wasn't like middle of winter, but it was still down probably in the forties and it was misting and you're not moving, you're getting cold. So, you know, people are trying to move and do jumping jacks and yeah. up and down the trail to stay warm. And then when we heard that the helicopter couldn't make it in, okay, let's keep going down until we get, can get to the next spot. And uh, at that point the sun's coming up and uh, I think they picked her at like 7.30 in the morning. And when you're already cold and damp and then, you know, that rotor wash, that's real cold. <laughs> you immediately watching your breath freeze. Mm. Um, so I think we got to our, back to the cars at like nine. Yeah. And I'd worked all day and then I was out all night. I went home and took a shower and I went to work. That's heroic. <laughs> so, and I felt, yeah. 
pretty epic. Yeah. And I think that's that harkens back to why it's important to carry all that stuff in your pack because, I mean, you never know when you're going to be out all night because right. things change. It's very dynamic. Or you uh, think, oh, I'm just going out to watch Dickie. And yeah. then as you're carrying this person out, <laughs> you get a call for another search. Yeah. And so you think what's going to be a small you know, turnaround time ends up being an all-night thing. Um, so now I tend to carry a lot more gear in my car so that if things change, I can pack more stuff once I get to the trailhead or what staging area and know a little bit more about what might be happening. Hmm. Oh, yeah, the car tote. Yep. I have that. <laughs> car tote on, on top? No, it's in the back of my car, but it's a big tote <laughs> and it has a lot of stuff in it. You never know. I, I'm prepared for everything. Yep. We could go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would be like, I'd be so thrown off if I was doing like a mission like that. And I was like, okay, it's going to be six hours. And then you end up being out all night. I would mm-hmm. just, I don't think I would do that well, but I'm weak. So. And one of the um, members' wives went and got breakfast sandwiches. Mm-hmm. It was the most amazing thing I've ever eaten. We get to the back to staging and there's these, and I don't eat gluten meat or dairy and i didn't care i ate like two of those meat sausage very glutenized english muffins they were delicious and dunkin donuts and yeah it was great yeah <laughs> awesome so anything else stomp about uh search and rescue that you want to cover with uh with general Lindsay? well i want to get Lindsay's favorite or epic. memorable mission to yeah, date there that. must be some huh oh gosh <laughs> I'm sure there's some. I don't know. Um, my most memorable mission. I don't know. There are too many that I was just trying to beat you in how many we went out on. But <laughs> that didn't work out very well for me. Well, you, yeah. you, you dodged a couple close puking incidents. I did. I, yeah. So we talked a little bit about how I am not okay with vomit. <laughs> and um, I've actually been really lucky. So when you are carrying somebody, even if they aren't sick to begin with, they often get jostled around in the litter a lot. So sometimes people just get sick because they're being jostled. <laughs> so far True. to date, I have been off of the litter all but one time. <laughs> And the one time I was on the litter, I was at the feet. <laughs> I was so lucky. I'm doing good. This is good for me. Because I'm not, it's definitely not my thing. <laughs> you haven't been on the search, have you? I haven't. I, we had, there was, we got called off. Oh, yeah. I left work to go to that search and Out got, Warren. To, yeah, got to the parking lot mm. and said, oh, you can go back home. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it happens. They yep. come in spurts. Yeah. Huh. Now, when you're a, so how long, how does it, how does it work to progress, progress within a search and rescue team? Do you have to go on a certain number of missions before you get called in for a search or do you have to do a certain number of missions before you get called in for a winter carry or how, how does that all work? You got to be a guy. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Not even true. Stomp. Nobody believes the, that. The whole purpose of this episode is to dispel that idiocy. 
<laughs> Thank you, Mike. You gotta Jeez. be a rugged guy. Cut, cut this out. <laughs> we gotta edit this out. Well, I'm sorry, Chad. Yeah, edit. <laughs> I apologize. It's um, a joke. Come on. I'm sure every team is a little different. We don't. I don't think have any requirements for having to be on the team for so long or how many missions before going on to a search. I mean, I don't think. I think I'd only been on the team a little over a year with the first couple searches and just kind of got thrown into it. Learn as you go a little bit. Um, as far as winter, you know, our specific team, they'd, they'd like to see people on for, you know, a full season um, so that we get to know them a little bit and, uh, you know, feel like it's somebody that's going to be responsible in a winterized setting. And so then, you know, usually into their second year, they can apply for winter. And it doesn't mean that people won't get called out in winter, but as far as just, you know, if it's above tree line or if it's, um, you know, maybe more hazardous conditions, we have a smaller crew for that yeah obviously i think there's i i just go by the the media reports and i you know track that information and it does seem like particularly late november december january and february it does tend to be a slower period obviously i would think that like it's there's a lot less room for error when it comes to people getting in trouble but the volume of rescues just seems like it's a little bit lower in the winter anyway. So people are probably excited to get the call by February if they haven't. Oh seen yeah. Much <laughs> we miss our, our SAR family. I know I got called yes. in March, I think. Yeah. I was so excited. I was like, it's still snow. I can go. <laughs> <laughs> I think one year we got called out to like Pine Bend. And by the time we got out there, you know, like halfway across the kink, she had already made her way with some good Samaritan hikers that were helping her down. But we were all like, oh, my gosh, it's so good to see everybody <laughs> who wants to go get food. <laughs> A little like uh, mini star reunion. Midwinter one? Yeah. Yeah. We don't get that many, quite as many winter. It just seems like the people that go out in winter are a little more knowledgeable and prepared. Mm, I remember that. I mean, driving to that mission, the uh, the snow piles on the, you know, either side of the kank had to be about 15 feet high. Right. And maybe like, I don't know, 20 yards out from the, the end of the, the trail, at back at the trailhead, one of my snowshoes fell off and I immediately post-holed up to my groin. I'm like, whoa, it was a heavy, heavy duty snow that year. I, it, I think uh, Northwoods Lock covered that one, actually, oh, that really? episode. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, that was a neat one, but the snow that year was really heavy. Awesome. Well, I think um, the, the point here is that regardless of where you are, obviously we're sort of a New Hampshire base, but like whether you're in New England or anywhere else, um, we want to just sort of emphasize that you know, anybody that's willing to volunteer that has experience in you know, the backcountry or hiking and is interested, you know, step up and, and help out and and volunteer because it sounds like you know what I'm hearing here is that you know it's the obviously helping out doing the rescues is a key point but I think even more what I'm hearing is that like there's there's a friendship factor here that that is really rewarding around search and rescue so you guys seem like you're you know even you even are willing to put up with stomp so <laughs> I tell you that, I think it really is yeah. <laughs> it says a lot it does say a lot <laughs> yeah. Did you know? Do you guys? Um, does everyone get out and party um, in the slow seasons? You all meet up and, and get drunk when you're not doing rescues. Mm. 
not really not so much this is probably <laughs> the uh the majority of it right here <laughs> i know right but we did have some like climbing nights need to get those going again yeah chris yeah chris wants to actually yeah. you mentioned that just to kind of keep going with stuff yeah yeah there's nothing wrong with that i mean after a mission or something we'll we'll head out sometimes but it yeah. is rare because usually people are just wiped and um you know everybody goes their own separate ways you know geog- geographically so sometimes it's hard to get together but um yeah it's not prohibited by right. any means <laughs> But there are certainly times of the season where, oh my God, we could get another call in about half an hour. So we take that into consideration. I mean, I would just say that, you know, if if you're somebody who is kind of intrigued by search and rescue, or you wanted to do search and rescue, you know, if you're an avid hiker, you're looking for a way to give back, um, you know, don't be put off by thinking it's something that, you know, these glorified people are doing. It's just everyday people. Like and you don't, have, you don't have to have medical training. You don't training. need to have medical training. No. You know, you need to have a good head on your shoulders. You need to be able to, you know, work well on a team and take care of yourself and not put yourself at risk, you know, in that team setting um, and be able to take directions. And really, that's what we're looking for. So what's your take on the impact of social media, good or bad for a search and rescue? I hope it's good. You know, I think it's, it's a fine line. We don't want to, you know, reveal too much about, you know, certain carries maybe that people, you know, may, might not want shared. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important that people know what happens up in the whites um, or how about, anywhere. How about for re- recruitment? And for recruitment, I think. Yeah. I mean, I like to put stuff on, you know, once it's approved. If, yeah. I, if I can do it, there's a lot of people out there that can do it. So I don't want people to be afraid that... You know, they they couldn't or shouldn't think about joining because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. I mean, my personal take is that it's been positive because like when when we first came into it, there was that image of like these superheroes like, oh, my God, I can never do that. Right. Like there. It's not it's not exactly true. It's like, you know, it's experience and skill and sure you need those, but it's you can develop it as well. And uh, yeah. So I think social media has been great for that in terms of making it more like. This is sort of an every man, every woman uh, activity uh, that can be accessed by people on social media that hike, that yeah. enjoy hiking. I mean, we have people in there, like 60s and 70s that come out and help out, and they do a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, so it's open to everybody. Even you, Stomp. <laughs> <laughs> Before we move on, can we? Um, how do we get a hold of you two? Um, we'll put it in the show notes, but okay. just so you can talk about it briefly. I'm on Insta. This is Jen. Um, it's one dot great dot life. And the great is G R E Y T because I have a greyhound. <laughs> <laughs> and so life is great. And here comes in. Here comes Lizzie. Well, here's the thing. With mine. <laughs> okay. Everyone's laughing because I love it. Stomp really thinks that mine is inappropriate to say. <laughs> On a podcast, it's Cuddles McPuffy Pants. In person, Mike. Yeah. Here she is. I love that name. How did you get that name? Oh, it's the best. So it's kind of a strange story. So my, I, <laughs> You don't have to go there if you don't want no, to. No, it's fine. It's, 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 it's appropriate. Um, I was in Ireland with my family. And my brother is a travel blogger. And so... He was trying to get me onto Instagram. And at the time, I had never, I, I didn't really know what it was. I'm like, what is this platform? What are we doing? 
I don't want people to know who I am. So <laughs> I made up Cuddles McPuffy Pants. So nobody knew who I was. It is genius. So the Mick is hearkening back to your to, uh, heritage? Yeah, to my Irish roots. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. That is funny. It's more <laughs> kid-friendly than giant moon penis. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, true. come on. Yeah, that is true. We still haven't uncovered who uh, who was responsible for that. Mm. So It's coming out this. Actually, yeah, you won't. You'll hear it Friday. But okay. yeah, it's sort of funny. <laughs> Great episode coming out this coming week, actually. We give a little bit more backstory on it. Yep. Awesome. All right, let's move on, Please. I think. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, oh, by this the way, so Cuddles McPuffy Pants is on Insta. So good luck trying to find that. You have to spell it correctly. No, no, we're going to, we'll put the link in the show notes. You better. <laughs> I mean, it's easy. It's how it sounds. It's no spaces all together. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Yeah, that's funny. Um, so, so Jen and Lindsay, so we're going to get into some search and rescue news. So you have both like, and this is, I've noticed this has happened multiple times, but like if you're doing like a rescue on the ridge, whether you're going up Falling Waters or Old Bridal, like it seems like it's not uncommon at least a couple of times a year for you to be on a rescue and then all of a sudden like you're either finished up with that rescue or you're in the middle of it and then you find out like there's you know somebody's in trouble on falling waters next thing you know like an hour later mm-hmm. you find out that somebody's in trouble on old bridal and it becomes like chaos right so yeah. you've been have you been on those missions where it's like two rescues at, uh, for for the price of one yes definitely both of us yeah yep. or early morning early morning and late night in the same day same it's crazy yeah well believe it or not on Monadnock they had a three for one <gasps> Three Ooh. rescues going on at one time. Oh, my goodness. Did you hear about this one? I think yeah. I did. I didn't get the details. I didn't get the details, no. Let's let's check it out. Yeah, so it was November 14th, which I don't know what day that is. I don't know my calendar. I think it was a me, Sunday. Like a t- yeah, it was a Sunday. So 3.30, oh, t- uh, 10.30 a.m., uh, Fish and Game were notified that... Um, there was an injured hiker a short distance from the summit on the Spellman Trail. So this is the way that I go up. I'll typically go up Spellman. Me and my friends do our little secret mission to find a an unnamed secret spot. And then we head up to the Pompelli Trail Junction. And it looks like this person had um, fallen and been injured. So 57-year-old female from New Hampshire suffered a fall and was in need of, in need of assistance. So... She was assisted down the mountain by park staff and an off-duty member of the um, Jaffrey Ringe Memorial Ambulance Service to park headquarters, and I guess they arrived at 7.38, so 10.30, they got down at 7.38, and then she was transported to, uh, that's a long carryout, yeah. I'm not really sure what was going on, but anyway, as that was going on, yeah, so they, her call came in at 10.30, and it says here that she wasn't out until 7.30 at night because as her call was going on at around 12.45, they got a second call from um, from a, about another hiker in need of assistance. So there was a guy, from a 53-year-old guy from Massachusetts had made it to the summit and fell and suffered a serious uh, lower leg injury, and he was at the very peak of the mountain. So this is two people coming off the peak of Monadnock in icy conditions, apparently, or at least cold enough that it was getting slippery. Um, so there was 
park staff, Good Samaritans, and then Upper Valley Wilderness Response had made it up there. Um, so they were assisting this person, and they were basically looking for DART to come in with a helicopter, and there was a landing zone that was established. And um, apparently they they notified the rescuers that they, they weren't able to fly. So they figured the quickest way to get this person off the mountain would be to descend from the summit down the White Arrow Trail to the old toll road. So the rescuer rescue team endured wet, steep, and slippery trail conditions. Meanwhile, this other lady's getting taken down Spellman, I'm guessing. Um and then well descending the White Arrow Trail with, with this guy at around 6 o'clock, yet another call came in about a third injured hiker. And this hiker had suffered a fall and was in need of assistance. So 43-year-old female from Massachusetts, apparently she's a frequent hiker on Mount Monadnock. She was out for an evening hike when she saw all the emergency vehicles. And she figured, I'm going to go try to help out. She had experience as a hiker. She'd been on there quite a few times so she wanted to be a good Samaritan, and then she ascended the White Arrow Trail to the summit, noticed that nobody was at the summit, so she missed all the action. She went down the White Arrow Trail, and just before she gets to where the rescue teams were carrying this guy, she fell and injured herself. So then the four rescuers that were carrying this guy, meanwhile, on the other side of the mountain, they're still carrying this lady down as all this is going on. It's amazing. They had to leave the the second guy and ascend back up the White Arrow Trail to help this third person. Um, And apparently she had to be put into an ambulance on the top of the toll road. So I guess this guy... Oh, no, the third person, her, de- her condition was deteriorating, and she became the high priority to transport to the hospital. So she ended up getting down around 745. So long-ass day from Monadnock in the Upper Valley mm-hmm. Search and Rescue wow. Team. What a mess. Kind of a circus. I'm exhausted reading all that shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's hear it for Upper Valley. Right. Great, great team, really great skilled job. team. Yeah. That's a busy mountain. It is. It is. Yeah. It's probably in the top three of most uh, frequented rescue spots anyway, don't you think? I mean, you hear about it all the time. There are a lot of people that hike that mountain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Although I've never done it. I've hiked Pack Monadnock a million times and never Monadnock. I think I've hiked Monadnock once before I had my dogs. And since they don't allow dogs... And that's why I've never hiked it. There you go. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah so is there a sign up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have to get through a gate with mm-hmm. a steward? Really? I believe so. Yeah. I did when I did it. I don't think there was. I think was. it's just because it's so popular. The yeah. amount of people, if there were dogs on it, it would just be like dog poo city. Oh, sure. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And it's like the main parking lot. You have to kind of walk right through the ranger station. So there's no way that you could sneak a dog through that area mm-hmm. um i think there's other trailheads i've never been to that maybe you could but you know you want to follow the rules unless you don't follow the rules <laughs> sneak a basset hound <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly but Manenok, i mean it's it's just like it's getting colder and it's getting slippery and my guess is that there's probably not enough of a, like sort of ice to effectively even even if they had micro spikes it probably would have been useless just because it's there's nothing to bite into it's just surface mm-hmm. so reminds me of mount major it's just yes it's terrible 
I hate it. it so many people are unprepared, you mm-hmm. know, when they go up that or down it. What's the size difference between Major and Monadnock? Good question. I don't know. Off my head. Oh, significant. Like elevation I mean, Major. Yeah, I mean, Major I would it would be the equivalent of like Mount Willard mm-hmm. and then Monadnock would be the equivalent of going up like Mount Pierce. It's 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 not a 4,000 footer, but it's it's pretty close. Maybe like a gotcha. cardigan. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, yeah. 3,000 something. Huh. Yeah. It's a great mountain. I love it. I mean, it, it's... It, the mistake a lot of people make is they go up these like white arrow and white dot trails that are like, that's where everybody goes. I recommend if anybody's going to hike it, I'm probably screwing myself now, but <laughs> I always go, I like to go up the Spellman Trail, sort of stay on that side and it's a lot less crowded. It's steeper, but it's more, more of an adventure to go up on that side. Hmm. I will never hike it. It's <laughs> too far away. Uh, you, Seriously, you, it's like I, like I'm it's so, you're spoiled. I know you're, you're trying to talk Jeez. me into going there, Mike, but I probably will. But it is like you get so lazy living so close to the whites, you know. Hmm. You're awesome, Stomp. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. So the next one here is. Uh, oh boy, I am jealous. <laughs> I'm jealous. So. Um, so we do. We got to be serious here for a minute because this is a um, this is actually a sad story. So November twentieth, um, Rockingham County officials in Brentwood, New Hampshire, which is down by me, that's like southern New Hampshire. Um, so they they got a call related to an individual floating in a kayak in the middle of the Exeter River. Um, Brentwood police arrived on scene and observed the kayak floating in the river and saw a male individual lying down motionless inside the kayak so that the headline here is basically a, f- a hunter found deceased in Brentwood and um, so this this person was um, motionless and did not respond to their calls so a member of the police department waded into the river to retrieve the kayak and observed what appeared to be a deceased male inside the boat so uh, EMS arrived on scene a short time later and uh, fishing game determined that it was a 79 year old male whose name's being withheld that uh, was deceased inside the kayak. So they, they don't really know any details. They're, they're, they're labeling this as a hunter. He was hunting in a kayak, I guess. I don't really know how that works, but um, you know they're, they're investigating the, um, the incident, and it appears that he was you know suffered a medical emergency at this point. So rest in peace, Hunter, but it sounds like he, he passed away doing sort of a cool activity, I guess. Hmm. We always say that when somebody dies, like you know, at least they, they're doing something True. outdoors and doing something they love. So <laughs> right. I don't know what it's worth. Yeah, that's all you can say. It's the mystery of yeah. life. Yeah. 79. At least he's so. out there doing it. That's a. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, that's what I just said. Stop. Everybody says that. They're like, well, at least he's doing what he loves. Pay attention, stop. Well, no, no, no. I say yes. that because there have been like some weird, like, young recoveries and stuff lately and it's mm-hmm. just like oh good you know at least at least with this individual they were in their latter years you know yeah so if you were going to pass away at, at an old age stomp what activity would you be doing <laughs> <laughs> where you would say okay at least i'm doing what i love would it be mixing like DJ yeah work probably or yeah or, probably yeah. yeah i think i would love that yeah, yeah. nice and loud my my eardrums will explode now this crumple onto the ground that'd be beautiful with a yeah, I'm gonna, glass I'm of gonna, cabernet I'm keel over at 90 <laughs> like over an excel spreadsheet 
<laughs> oh, that's too funny. Oh yeah. God. We, we have to cut this out. We're being insensitive. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> How would you want to go, right. Jen? Oh, What's your best way to go? Uh, this got morbid quickly. I know, go it really ahead, did. <laughs> I don't know. Gosh, in my sleep, I guess. Hmm. And you, cuddles? <laughs> well, <laughs> probably cuddling pu- a prob- McPuffy. Probably pants. cuddling a lot of puppy dogs. Right. How's that? Oh, all right. <laughs> Dog person, not a cat person. I just wouldn't want to die like out hiking because then somebody would have to like come out and get me. You know. <laughs> What's that even mean? You would want to die hiking. No, I said I wouldn't want to oh, die hiking. Oh, you wouldn't. I misheard you. Okay. Yeah, because then, you know, SAR team would have to like come out and get me and <laughs> Yeah, all right. I feel bad. Okay, so. I appreciate that. I'm glad it wasn't the other way around. That no. would have been weird. So this is already yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah, let's cut all of this. Yeah, this got this got really morbid quickly, but that's it for search and rescue news. So, um, I've got a couple of history topics that I want to cover here, but before we get into that, I forgot. So, We've been talking a little bit about the dogs here. So I have breaking news about dogs. So I've been on a mission to try to get uh, Mrs. Mike to let me have a dog. And thus far, it's been no go. I've had a failed adoption. I've had a couple of like stern arguments about why I should have a dog. And it hasn't worked. But I just found out that there's a, a rescue organization that is setting up shop in my town. Huh. And they're looking for fosters, so I'm going to talk to the the missus when she gets back from Florida and see if she'll let me be a foster. And my my thought is that if I can get a dog in the house for like two days, and then I'm just not going to let them leave. <laughs> um, Mike, I'm headed down to Alabama to pick up a bloodhound. If there are other ones oh. available, if you want one of those. <laughs> oh my god! So I'm going to stay in touch with you too because I may need to like again. I'm I'm going to switch to a, my move's going to be I need a foster. Oh. And then I'm just never going to let the foster leave. <laughs> Well, they are always looking for greyhound fosters, I will say. They don't I like know, to just adopt them straight out because they need to acclimate to a home environment. So, yeah. now do you do you take the greyhound hiking? Like you can't take the greyhound hiking in the winter, right? It's too, too Not cold. Not up into severe elevation. She just turned 12, so she's slowing down a little bit, but she's done half the 4000 yeah. footers. Um and now, you know, we might do things like Willard or well, if Welsh Dickey is like packed out really good, we might not do the whole loop, but I can get her up to at least the Welch side and back down. So it just depends on the conditions okay. and how nice it is. But And is she voice command with you? Were you, were you able to keep, keep her close by? She, um, she's not completely voice command. I, I do hike off leash with her, but she doesn't stray. She doesn't run off into the woods. She's not lagging behind or ahead of me. She's kind of like right with me the whole time. She's Velcro. She's pretty much Velcro. Yeah. So she's and mm. a little, I mean, less skittish than she used to be. She was afraid of the woods when I first got her. But um, so then if I see other do- people with dogs coming, I'll leash her up. Um, yeah. Was she a retired race dog? Yeah. Yep. She raced in Florida. I've had three greyhounds and uh, they've all hiked a little bit, but she's the one I hiked with the most. Yeah. Well, she when when they come out of an adoption after they've been racing, are they generally like in bad mental shape, or was she pretty pretty um, easy to transition into into retirement? She was actually in pretty rough shape. She was probably in the worst of all of them. I didn't. We didn't get her right away. She went through a pretty long foster process um, where she transitioned from Florida to New York State and then over to us, but. 
it's usually, you know, them getting used to, you know, not sleeping in a crate or sometimes they still do sleep in a crate um, if they're going to a home with other animals. That's why they like to foster them sometimes to test them to see if they're, you know, safe with other dogs or small dogs or cat safe. Um, the one that I have now, she's very, you know, low prey drive, so I don't have to worry about her. I've seen chipmunks run right across her feet camping and she could care less. We have a cat. Um, they tolerate each other. She doesn't chase after her. Um, but other greyhounds would do that. So, um, but it's just like quirky nuances. Like they've never seen stairs and they have to be taught how to walk up and down stairs. And for some of them, it's really easy. And other ones, they kind of panic and hardwood floors can be difficult. And my second greyhound who was a foster and then we didn't, um, ever have her leave because she was too sweet. Um, I lived on a lake at the time. We took her out to the dock. We walked to the end of the dock. She kept walking and fell straight off the dock and sunk six feet to the end of her leash because they don't realize sometimes that water is not a hard surface. They just, it's things that they've never seen. And so. That's amazing. Yeah, they have, it's like greyhound geometry. Interesting. Now, is it just Florida now where they're legal to race? I, there's still a few states. Um, Florida, I think they've actually banned it, and I don't know if it's completely phased out. There were, there were so many tracks down there that they were phasing it out just so that there weren't so many dogs coming out of, quote, retirement all at once. But I think Texas and Arizona and West Virginia are some states that still do it pretty heavily. Um, so back when I was um, my first Greyhounds, they came out of New Hampshire and Massachusetts. They were still racing then. That's starting back in like 2005. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember like the, you know, the Seabrook yeah. in, in Wonderland and Revere were pretty big. But has there been any like un- unintended consequences with the, with with Greyhound racing being banned? Like, do, is it like to the point now where there's not a, not a lot of Greyhounds or is the, the breed threatened because it's just not, there's no money in it for racing anymore? I haven't heard that it's been threatened just because the states that are still racing do have you know quite a few. So they're actually hauling dogs out to other parts of the country to take the burden off the rescues in states that have kind of that overwhelming presence still of racing. And, you know, maybe somewhere down the road things will change. But, you know, there's people on both sides. Um, I guess I'm probably pretty neutral. But, you know, they just want a cozy place to snuggle up with people they're really quite loving pets you know they just love being around people yeah it's an interesting breed we had my, i remember my neighbor had one uh for years and uh it was it was great dog and i don't have a lot of experience with them but it's it's interesting i always kind of wondered like because it was like such a big deal when they canceled racing around here mm. and i think it was like a like an election or something where they voted on it and everyone was like oh it's such an important industry and there's going to be all these unintended consequences but it just sounds like they've moved to on to other states and it's hasn't really changed mm. much and it's probably not a great life for the dogs right. But definitely not really a hiking dog per se. So <laughs> back to that. Um, yeah. They're not really built for hiking, but you know you can build them up to it. But if you're a hardcore hiker, probably not getting a greyhound. <laughs> what dogs? Yeah. What dogs are built for hiking? Um, you know, mutts. <laughs> I feel like are just really good. You know, really? but yeah, that's funny. But just, I mean, I had an Australian Shepherd that was. Fabulous. He was pretty good at yeah labs. I mean, yeah, huskies. Some dogs like hiking in the winter better than others. I mean, I've seen little. I've seen little chihuahuas hike in the ridge. You know, it just I think it depends. But 
You gotta know. Always on the ridge. Are we got this like Holy whole topic? Moly. Sorry, but you know, no, you, that's you cool. just gotta. You gotta pay close attention. Yeah, and you know, it's funny. Like, I'm much more hyper vigilant. I think with like the gear doing SAR now. But I think back when I hiked, you know, real hardcore doing like a half Prezi traverse with her, I didn't have any kind of rescue harness. And um, now I do. Now I just like doing the Quincy bog. I bring it because if she slips and breaks a leg, I want to be able to carry her. Yeah. There's like a whole, it's a whole separate kit yeah. for the dog. Yep. Hmm. Are you using the uh, mountain dog wear? I sure am. Yeah. Interesting. The Hampshire made. Yep. Yeah. That's great. We plug them occasionally. Yeah. Certainly did after the Odin show. Yeah, and that, that Odin show was, I think, our second most popular episode. And mm. I, I hope, I mean, I don't know for, for sure, but I'm hoping that that sort of got the message out to, to carry extra gear for the dogs in case they need a rescue. I think Stomp should do a round of 48 with um, Daphne? Daphne, who's <laughs> trying to get up in my mic right now. She's so high energy, it's incredible. She's out of control. <laughs> so. She's repositioning She's, the mic to a better sound. She's just trying different uh, tonal qualities. She is. Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? All right, Stomp. So um, we got a couple of history segments, and then we'll we'll wrap it up here. So, All right. Stomp, how long do you think that they've been measuring the Pemi the Pemi River flow? What year do you think that started? Hmm, I'm going to guess 1740. Ooh. Uh, no, no. That's a little, like, calm down there. We weren't that technically like, what kind of advanced. Technology that they have back then. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah. It may I not have been, been digital, stick. but yeah, yeah. So, so what I did is I pulled a couple of. Um, there's a website that has those um, those historic site markers. So um, one of the historic site markers is in Plymouth, and it is it marks where the stream gauging in New Hampshire started. So. Um, there's a site in Plymouth where uh, it says this is the site of the longest continuous stream gauging in New Hampshire. So daily measurement, measurements of the level of the Pemi River were, begin, were begun here in 1886 by the Locks and Canals Company of Lowell, Massachusetts, which controlled the flowage in the Merrimack River and its headwaters. So we got to tell our friend George that this stuff has been going on since 1886. They've been damming up these rivers. So um, in 1903, with funding from the state of New Hampshire, the U.S. Geological Survey began to measure the discharge of the river to determine available water power and the effects of the White Mountain deforestation. Um, and the original gauge was on the abutment of a covered bridge on the site of this sign, which is in Plymouth. So um, the concrete gauging station, I guess they built around it, dates from 1926. But they've been, you know how we sometimes we tell people like if there's a river flow, always go on the PEMI site and make sure that you're getting a sense of what the uh, the discharge is so they've been measuring this since 1886 which is pretty impressive that is impressive yeah i never knew that do you have access to the other um, measurement stations that people should know about at the moment i don't have it at my fingertips but i think if you just if you google like Pem, pemi um, water level you can get to uh, there's like a very detailed graphing site that you can go to that will tell you um, where the different gauges are located and what the what the discharge is. And I think we've talked about this, like if it's below 600 
cubic feet, I think, is the measurement. Uh, then typically you're you're good for water crossings. Once it gets above that, then right, you, you gotta you gotta be on the lookout. Yep, just another tool to have if you're planning a hike uh, around some water rain events. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, 1886. Uh, my next topic here is a guy named Ebenezer McIntosh Stomp. So this is, we had covered this previously in the last episode when my audio went out. So talk about Ebenezer. So this guy Ebenezer. was Ebenezer. So he was a, uh, he was an early rebel rouser in Boston. So he was part of the, um, leaders in the Boston South End and he became I guess the head of the South End gang um, and he was a uh, I guess part of the leadership of the Stamp Act protesters in 1765 um, and 1766 so I guess the British government passed the Stamp Act and it pissed off the American colonists that were there so he was part of the Sons of Liberty uh, group that had they were basically dissidents that um, at the time were protesting a number of issues that the, the British Crown had implemented in Boston so the reason I bring this guy up is that there's a historical marker in I think Haverhill, New Hampshire uh, dedicated to Ebenezer McIntosh. So this guy had led a riot in Boston, had been an early leader in the resistance in the, in the Boston area, and eventually um, he got sort of out of favor in, in a, a number of these groups, and he ended up heading, he ended up in debtor's prison, but he ended up hiking his way up to Haverhill, New Hampshire, so um, he had left Boston, settled in Haverhill, and I guess he joined the army for a couple of months and was involved in an attack on New York City. Um, and then when he returned to Haverhill, he served as the town sailor of leather, which I think is like the bootmaker, and um, eventually married, married a widow, had a few kids, and most of the family moved to Ohio. Ebenezer was an early backpacker, and he hiked his way to Ohio and then back to New Hampshire. And he was like 65 years old when he went uh, went on that trip. So he went all the way to Ohio from New Hampshire to see his kids. And then um, I guess he ended up back in Haverhill, but he didn't do so well later in life and ended up in the poor farm. But in recognition of his early actions as a early protester involved in the Boston Tea Party and other activities in, in Boston right around the Revolution, Ebenezer McIntosh has a nice green sign in Haverhill, New Hampshire, dedicated to him. So it's pretty cool. Where exactly? I don't know exactly in Haverhill. I can, uh, I'll, I'll put the address of the site marker on the show notes, but I don't know exactly in Haverhill, New Hampshire, where it is. Was he a uh, stream gauger? <laughs> he was not a street gauger. He was a he was a boot guy. He made the boots. He did everything else for God's sakes. Jeez, that's a hell of a resume. Yeah, I mean, I would have to imagine back then, like if you if you every town needs a boot maker because <laughs> your your feet get wet when you're gauging streams. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what I want to know is what is exactly a, a poor farm? Do you know? Oh, so. I think what would go on is I think back in the, like, you know how we have like, you know, all these welfare services. I think that back back in the days, it was based on these different settlements and these towns would carve out like different areas where you would live in the poor farm. And I think mostly it's probably just a corner of the town where there's little plots of land and small shacks where they could live on would be my guess, but I don't know. I mean, that sounds legit. Huh. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Interesting. And the last one, Stomp, this is a site marker that is in Jefferson. And it's actually, we have gone to this site marker together when we hiked with Mark Lindeberg. Mm -hmm. And we did Owl's Head and Mount Martha. When you exit the Uh, um, Mount Martha, you come to a site marker for the Cherry Mountain Slide. And uh, this talks about an incident that happened on July 10th, 1885 at 6 in the morning. There was a slide from Cherry Mountain's northern peak that left a deep gash from Owl's Head into the valley. So a million tons of boulders, trees, and mud loosened by a cloudburst um, rolled and tumbled a torturous, torturous two miles, destroying our Oscar Stanley's new home and his cattle barn and crops. So I guess there was a, a farmhand that ended up dying a few days later. Oscar's family survived, luckily. Um, but I guess this, you know, there was some people that had um, had passed away. So there was some trains and carriages that brought people from far and wide to view the tragic site. Um, right now, immediately when I read this, I was like, we got to find this slide. But apparently... It's almost disappeared through nature's healing process, but it would be interesting, Stomp, to go back up there and see if we can find the remnants of it. That's such a steep a steep area, especially from the owl side. Yeah, exactly. So I'm thinking we do some research using the technology on the mapping system that you would you had gotten the, the lead on that with Steve Smith. Sure, LIDAR. And then maybe if we can find where it is, we can do a little, little whack out to that area. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's do that. I'll, I'll start doing some, uh, some research. Cool. All right. So I think that's it for this show. So Jen, Lindsay, thank you for, for coming. Anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? Just thanks for having us. Yeah, we enjoyed being a lot here. Of fun. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a good time. <laughs> and I think they're ready to get away from crazy Daphne. I kind of liked her. Yeah. Isn't she nuts? She's yeah, sweet. she's a little crazy, but yeah. it's okay. She'll settle down. <laughs> she went think. into the crazy um, bitey phase for a little bit there. But, but she'll, she'll nip you <laughs> and nib- then lick nibble, you. yes. It's so sweet. <laughs> Yeah, like I understand why the executive producer may be like, I'm not dealing with this young, crazy kid anymore. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And and good luck in your puppy endeavor. Yeah, I'll keep you guys updated. I'm going to, if I do get one, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to name it Puppy McSnuggle Pants and I'm going to open up a, an Instagram account. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Perfect. Good stuff. It can can have its own Insta. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Nealon, New Hampshire Fishing Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me.
What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? Seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.